I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People. This episode's remarkable guest is Katie Milkman. She is a professor of operations, information, and decisions at Wharton. It's quite a mouthful for a title. She's also the author of How to Change, the science of getting from where you are to where you want to be. For those of you who are into influence, persuasion, and social psychology, this is required reading. I would put this book on par with Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion. In fact, you should think of Katie as the next generation Bob Cialdini, who, by the way, is my guest next week. Katie covers topics such as impulsivity, procrastination, laziness, confidence, and conformity in this book. I didn't plan it this way, but the episode starts with a customer reference about our sponsor, The Remarkable Tablet Company. One thing that I've learned about good marketing is that you have to take it when you can get it. This episode of Remarkable People is brought to you by Remarkable, the paper tablet company. Yes, you got that right. Remarkable is sponsored by Remarkable. I have version 2 in my hot little hands and it's so good. A very impressive upgrade. Here's how I use it. 1. Taking notes while I'm interviewing a podcast guest. 2. Taking notes while being brief about speaking gigs. 3. Drafting the structure of keynote speeches. 4. Storing manuals for the gizmos that I buy. 5. Roughing out drawings for things like surfboards, surfboard sheds, and office layouts. 6. Wrapping my head around complex ideas with diagrams and flowcharts. This is a remarkably well thought out product. It doesn't try to be all things to all people, but it takes notes better than anything I've used. Check out the recent reviews of the latest version. I'm Guy Kawasaki, this is Remarkable People, and now, here's the effervescent, charismatic, intellectual Katie Milkman, professor, consultant, mom, BFF of Angela Duckworth, and tennis player, but not surfer. Oh my gosh, we're really loving that tablet. My son, he's learning to read. And speaking of temptation bundling, he loves using it. And so he gets to write his practice letters. We do like a reading exercise every night. And then he gets to go get the tablet and write in it. And it is like, it went from a battle to he's just so excited. It's this like magical toy. So anyway, thank you. How old is he? (laughs) He's five. And yeah, when there will be an adult in the world someday who can read and write better <laughs> thanks to you so <laughs> well you know five-year-olds are our target market i love it too but we don't care why you magical. love it we don't care why you love it <laughs> it's more magical that it's changing his relationship with writing so that's really cool the story that most intrigued me in your book is the story of nick and how he used some service that if he didn't do these things like write a book and skateboard, he would have to pay a $14,000 penalty. Nick Winter. Yes. I love that story. So first, tell the story then. It's a great story. It is a great story. And it has a couple things from the book in it because he had a fresh start. He got on a plane, moved cross country and sort of had an existential crisis as he was going from, from east to west. And in relocating his life, he thought, I'm not doing all the things I want to be doing. I'm not accomplishing the things I want to be accomplishing. My life isn't that fun. And he decided he was going to make some big commitments and big changes. He's going to write a book in the next three months, and he was going to live more adventurously. He 
you know, had to go skydiving. There are a few other components to the living adventurously roller coaster um, component. And so he decided if he was going to do this, he couldn't just make a goal or tell his friends because he knew he'd back out and needed to have high stakes. So he used a, a service called Beeminder, a website that let him put money on the line. He put $14,000 on the line, basically everything in his bank account. He wiped it out with this commitment, or he would have wiped it out if he hadn't stuck to his goals. And then there's a referee who holds you accountable. And the question was, could he do it? And he achieved all of his goals in the next three months. And his book, he wrote this book called The Motivation Hacker. It's self-published, but it sold something like 20,000 copies, if I'm remembering correctly, and also managed to skydive, which maybe was a bigger accomplishment. And if he had paid the 14,000, first of all, why did he pick such a high number? It's crazy. <laughs> it was a little crazy. It's an extreme example. I do love okay. it, though. He picked a high number because he knew if it was such a high number that he couldn't forfeit that money, then there was no way he wasn't going to wake up every morning and put his all into achieving that goal. And so he made it too costly to fail. And if he had failed and paid the 14000 who would have gotten the 14000 That's a great question. You know, I don't remember who it was. Okay, it might okay. have been the website. All these websites have different setups. Uh, the one I um, am most familiar with, because I have the, the co-founder come and speak in my MBA class at Warden every year, is Stick. Stick.com, S-T-I-C-K-K. The extra K is for contract. And on that one... You put money on the line and then it goes to charity and a charity of your choice. But they have anti-charities to try to make it so that there's not a silver lining and you can pick your poison. So on both sides of the political spectrum or like, you know, you're you're you support the NIRA or you're pro gun control. There's a charity on either side and you can choose the one where it'll sting the most if you have to forfeit the money to that organization. OK, so I think I like this idea, but. <laughs> Until so you lose $14,000. Well, but, I mean, okay, that's mind-boggling. I don't know why someone would do that. But first psychological issue I want you to discuss on this. We're going to stay on this example for a while, if you don't mind. Sure. So, so from a motivational factor, is the loss of 14000 more powerful than if it had been done the opposite way? Don't ask me how, but if he had achieved these things, he would have gotten 14,000. What's a more powerful motivator? Yeah. So Danny Kahneman's brilliant work with Amos Tversky has shown that losses loom larger than gains. It's part of what he won the Nobel Prize for about 20 years ago. Some people have estimated that a loss feels about twice as bad as a gain feels good, but others will debate and say that that number varies a bit by context. But it's clear that when I could lose $10, that's going to sting more and motivate me more than if I have the potential upside of winning $10. Okay. Now, with your buddy's company, that's a different paradigm. We know who the 14000 would have gone to. It would have gone to a charity or an anti-charity. My mind would say, okay, so even if I lose, it'll go to the Red Cross. It'll go to Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Well, that's good. So it would be less motivating. And then I don't know about the, okay, so if you don't do it, guy, it's going to go to the NRA. I might just renege on that and just say, you know, forget it. I'm not giving the NRA under any circumstances. So how do you thread that needles? 
That's a great question. I think everybody has their own tolerance for these different kinds of risk. My friend Dean Carlin, who actually was one of the co-founders of Stick and who's done a lot of brilliant research on commitment devices and how useful they can be, has used commitment devices with friends. And he often puts money on the line that he'll forfeit to the friend. And that way, he doesn't want to give his buddy (laughs) $10,000 or vice versa. But he also doesn't want to renege and... (laughs) So I think everyone has to find their own balance. The key insight is that if you can create some sort of penalty that you will face if you don't achieve a goal, and if it's ideally, it's a near-term goal that you can be motivated to achieve even the next week, you can take action on. So the nearer term, the better, then that can be really, really effective as a way to change. But wait, so let's say I do the friend thing, okay? Now there's negative energy in the universe. My friend is hoping that I fail the challenge. What kind of friend is that? <laughs> you got to choose a friend who would never hope you fail the challenge. Well, this is going to be disappointed if you have to give them money. You know, on the surface, this is a great idea. But when you think about it. You're right. There are tricky components to it. You have to find a way to do it for you. I will say I find the anti-charity, you know, the one I hate. I, I can do that because I, I will not. I know I will just it will not go to them. They will not get that money. <laughs> So to to bring it back to real world example, I love to surf. And one of the skills in surfing is walking to the nose. I don't know if you've ever seen surfing where people get on the board and they walk to the nose and they, they do what's called hanging five or hanging 10, where your toes are over the, the tip. And that is not trivial to do. So I was thinking as I read your books, I'll do this. I'll say, I'll put a thousand dollars down and the negative would be, if you don't succeed in walking to the nose guy, you have to pay the NRA $1,000. Or I could do a positive where if I, if I don't walk to the nose, it goes to the Jane Goodall Institute or a friend. So you think I should do that? Should I try that? <laughs> Does it feel like it'll work for you? I think that's the other thing. Like for yeah. some people, the stick, that's the way you're like, it's a motivation problem. Like I don't have the self-control to walk to the yeah. nose. Is that what it is? I think a key lesson in the book and from my research is that it depends what technique will work best for you because it depends what's holding you back. So is it (laughs) is it for you that you're like, I just don't have the willpower in the moment and I need to be more motivated by this big chunk of money that I could lose? Is that the problem? (laughs) I I don't know. (laughs) If I knew I would walk to the nose, but I have a partial idea here. So what I could do is make two things. If I walk to the nose, I give a thousand dollars to the Jane Goodall Institute. I love it. And if I walk to the nose, I don't give the NRA $1,000. Those are both good outcomes. Yeah, both good outcomes. You basically pay yourself a reward so, in the form of a charitable yeah. donation. <laughs> I love it. And by the way, why the Jane Goodall Foundation? That sounds like I'm a big fan of the, one of the most amazing female scientists in the world. But She's a, a personal friend of mine. Oh, amazing. Yeah, like literally. And I've... I've Fireside Chat hosted her. I've been the foil for her about four or five times. So, yeah, I mean, I get to say that Jane Goodall is a personal friend. How many people can say that? Like, seriously. That's huh? pretty cool. Yeah, <laughs> that's like, that's a life aspiration that you've achieved there. I love it. If you gave me a choice of you say, okay, I'm buddies with Elon Musk or I'm buddies with Jane Goodall, I would pick Jane Goodall. No all. question. Right, oh, yeah. right. Absolutely. Okay. So yeah, that's an know, easy one. Now, in the academic circles, I get to say that Katie Milkman and Bob Cialdini are my friends. I mean, can it get any better than that? (laughs) 
We got, we I mean, I don't think so, but <laughs> we could add Angela it. to that list. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, there you go. All my favorite people. <laughs> now I know how to motivate myself to walk to the nose. Um, <laughs> do you know currently how the Air Force Academy is assigning cadets to squadrons? Because this is another great story from your book. So maybe you can tell the background story there, but then what's the current thinking at the Air Force Academy? It is not done with the algorithm that backfired, I can tell you that. So once upon a time, like many colleges, the Air Force Academy assigned people to rooms and roommates at random. And a really creative economist named Scott Carell, who's a professor at UCSD, who had been an Air Force Academy cadet, actually, along with his twin brother, was interested in whether or not the person you ended up with as your freshman roommate whether or not that affected your outcomes and your grades. And specifically, he wondered if having a roommate who is a better performer might lift you up and a worse performer might shove you down. And he analyzed the data and found that, indeed, there was this roommate effect. If you ended up with a roommate by random chance who had a higher verbal score on the SATs, you did better in school. And if if you had one who had lower lower score, you did worse. So he was super intrigued by this, excited. And also, he he wanted to do good for his alma mater. He saw an opportunity to optimize roommate assignments. So he said, there's people who sometimes drop out of the Air Force Academy who really struggle freshman year. What if we strategically change the algorithm? So we assigned them super performing roommates to pull them up. And we'll just like leave the middling performers together. We'll, we'll take those top folks, pull up the bottom and leave the middlers together. But now he's a scientist. So he wanted to prove that this worked and have the data to show every institution around the world. Here's a way you can reduce dropout, improve freshman grades for the, the kids who are at risk. So he randomized who used who was assigned to a room using his algorithm and who was assigned just the old fashioned way, just random chance. And he looked for two years at how that affected students grades. And it backfired. (laughs) (laughs) He was so sure of what was going to happen. What he found was that the students who had been assigned to those squadrons with that sort of extreme gap between the roommates, the top performers, and the ones who were just on the cusp of, of not getting in, there was this unbridgeable gap. And they ended up not really interacting, sort of the the poor students on a hallway ended up clustering and hanging out with each other. The superstar students hung out with each other and the poor students did worse than they had under the old methodology where at least they ended up with somebody who was probably a middling (laughs) type on average who they would feel comfortable interacting with. So it's this really powerful lesson. Our peers can lift us up, but it has to be someone who's within reach, whose successes, whose struggles, whose strategies for doing better at whatever we're both trying to do are things that we could relate to and emulate and not someone who's stratospherically different. I think that's really, really interesting. And do you know what they're doing currently? 
I think they went back to the old random, random? assignment scheme. That okay. is what that is what was working fine. And this rejiggering just didn't, <laughs> which is yeah. what I think most colleges use. OK, maybe yeah. there's like a little they do a little around the edges to make sure, you know, two people who have really opposing like sleep schedules don't end up. <laughs> they ask you like a few questions <laughs> as a professor of. Wait, what's your actual psychology? Is it? No, I'm not a psychologist. I've never taken a class in psychology, actually. Wait, so what's your actual, what's your, what are you a professor of? What am I a professor of? I'm a professor of, are you ready for this? It's a mouthful. Operations, Information, and Decisions at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. How's that? Can you memorize that? (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, when I hear something like that, I think, oh, so she's the kind of person who figures out if people should send in a single line before the teller or multiple lines behind each. Isn't that operations research? First of all, I studied that as an undergrad. I have lots of (laughs) colleagues who study that. I have an operations research degree from my undergraduate university, but it is not what I study. So lots of my colleagues do. We are a funny department and it was formed. Now we're getting into crazy, (laughs) crazy. But like in the 1960s, there was this revolution in academia. And there was this idea that like, if we could study humans alongside computers and think of human systems in a similar way, we could revolutionize things. And so this department was formed with the vision that we'd have people who were studying machines and people all together and and sprinkling their insights together. Herb Simon, who's a Nobel laureate in economics, who was trained as a computer scientist, was one of the people who was an architect of the department. And All that ended up happening is we have sort of three subgroups in my department. (laughs) Some people study like queuing theory and lines and the kind of thing that you imagine. Some of us study the decisions part and some people study information systems and like technology. Anyway, your listeners may or may not find that interesting. That is is weird. That is where I come from. That's deeper than I wanted to go, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, I don't think you want to know that, but I'm telling you since you asked. (laughs) So now this is a semi, well, actually, this is a serious question. So. Katie, do you ever fear that too many people are being influenced or change their behavior based on studies of undergraduate students doing things for credit or spending money? You're asking me to try to throw the whole field of psychology under the bus. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's another way of looking at it, but a simple yes or no will suffice. (laughs) <laughs> I, I don't worry about it a lot. I will say, first of all, my research is almost exclusively not done with undergraduates in a laboratory for spending money. It's it's with companies looking at how employee behavior or customer behavior and, and testing things out in the wild. But I will also say I think there's a lot of research sh- showing that the insights that have been generated in the laboratory generally do apply in other places as well. It sounds very frustrating. And, and I don't love it either. I also, you know, I, I'm like, the lab is not my home. I'm I'm a field researcher. But the evidence does not seem to support all of our skepticism that there's a real problem okay. with that, because it turns out undergraduates are humans and labs are real places. And, <laughs> and the things that are being studied there mostly do generalize. Okay, I'm sure Phil Zimbardo is relieved. <laughs> I do believe in the prison effect. So, well, um, yeah. Anyway, yeah. That, that's a whole. That's a whole separate conversation. But yes, anyway, I will. Yes it is. Yeah, I. I believe the labs. The the lab is not largely the problem that has made some psychology 
studies, not replicate. We okay. go there on a whole other episode. <laughs> okay. So now let's get to your book. <laughs> well, we've been on your book, but now let's really like hone on in here. So first of all, what are the major factors that hinder change? Oh, man, there's a lot of them. So in the book, I talk about the getting started problem, which is just motivating yourself to begin, temptation and impulsivity, procrastination, which is very, very closely linked to temptation and impulsivity. There's forgetting, which I think we underappreciate the challenge of forgetting. People tend to think that's not a big one, but then it actually is. It amounts to a lot of our mistakes. And then, of course, there's habit or inertia. I talk about it as laziness <laughs> that leads us into these habits and leads us to sort of follow the path of least resistance. And finally, there's both confidence, which can be a challenge if we don't have enough of it, and conformity, which can be a challenge if, and we talked already a little bit about our peers, if we're conforming to a group of peers that isn't filled with role models, <laughs> that can go poorly. <laughs> and then finally, there's, you know, sticking to your goals. That's another challenge. Can you persist? So. It's a wonder we change it all based on that. <laughs> well, and a lot of us don't and a lot of us trip up. And that's why I think it's so interesting to study and why I felt like writing this book would be worthwhile because it's really hard. Change is really hard. There's a lot of things that are <laughs> obstacles. Just FYI, I, I do think it's a fantastic book and I'd put it in Thank the you. same category as Bob Cialdini's Influence, which... That is like the most amazing compliment you could possibly pay me as a oh, there you go. <laughs> fan of that book. I, I teach gonna... it every year. It's like a Bible for anyone who studies this stuff. Would you explain how and why a fresh start helps? Yeah, I would love to. This is one of my favorite things in the book and that I've ever studied. So a fresh start is a moment when you feel disconnected from your past failures and like you have a new beginning. So New Year's is the one we're all familiar with. We all think about New Year's as the time when people set resolutions and they say like, that. you know, it's January 1st. The old me couldn't quit smoking or kick the habit of ordering too much takeout, but the new me is all over it. I've got this. I've got the clean slate. I'm going to be able to do this. And we tend to step back and think big picture about our goals at those moments too. And it's not just New Year's. That's the famous one. But there are lots of moments that actually... Uh, stand out from the ordinary and make us feel like we have a new beginning. And they're, they can be small, like a Monday. Even Mondays are actually a little bit motivating for people or the start of a new month, the celebration of a birthday, the start of a new season, if it's called to your attention, turns out to be something that can be a, a fresh start. Celebration of holidays, particularly the kinds of holidays that you associate with fresh starts. If there's some religious holidays like this, there's Labor Day, Memorial Day, moments that we feel like we're opening a new chapter. And then there are bigger fresh starts. So there's like, there's fresh starts that aren't purely psychological. A fresh start in your life, you become a Divorce. parent. <laughs> or yeah, I don't know that. I don't know if that counts as fresh, but it's certainly a new beginning. <laughs> it can be fresh. If, I guess if you're getting divorced, it was probably a bad situation. So hopefully yeah. it's fresh. I would call the end of this sort of getting vaccinated for a lot of us probably feels at least it feels to me like yes. a fresh start. Yes. Yeah. New job, new home. There's all these moments. Those moments are motivating. And that's my research and other people's research has shown that at these kinds of breaking points in our lives, we're more likely to tackle big goals and it's easier to break habits because Again, we have that sense of a clean slate. And in the case of a physical disruption to your life, not only do you have the psychological benefit of feeling like you have a new beginning, but you literally may have a clean slate, right? If you go to a new job, you don't have old routines. You don't have the burrito 
shop <laughs> or the donut <laughs> shop, like luring you. You can start from a clean slate on on your eating habits, your exercise habits, your workplace hygiene habits. So so they can be really beneficial for both both reasons. But what if a devil's advocate says, well, around you know February 15th, people have stopped being on a diet and going to the health club? First of all, I, well, I have two answers to that. One is that's why I wrote the rest of the book. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the first chapter of the book talks about Excellent getting started. Answer. And then, then you got to figure out, okay, well, how do you keep going? There's a lot more to change than just getting started and having a goal. But the, the second answer is I do, and I, I truly believe this, and I get this question a lot because I get a lot of calls from reporters every New Year's having written a lot yeah. of research papers about the fresh start effect. And they're like, yeah, isn't everyone going to fail by February? Isn't this all a waste of time? I, I really, it's true that you cannot get anywhere if you don't try, right? If you don't start, there's literally nowhere you can go. So even if 90% of New Year's resolutions fail, which some, I think that's actually a, a high estimate, but it's an estimate I've heard, 10% succeed. So that's pretty awesome. Those 10% wouldn't have gotten anywhere if they hadn't started. And if we use science and use better techniques, we can lift that number from 10 what are the techniques? What's the science? How do we make change stick? Well, it depends. That's sort of the key lesson of the book. It depends on what the barriers are. We've talked a little bit already about commitment devices and peer effects. Let me jump to, we haven't talked at all about temptation. And I think that's actually, there's a reason that comes early in the book. So let me talk a little bit about that one, which is a big barrier. Present bias is really the barrier, uh, which is that we tend to as humans, and this will not surprise anyone, <laughs> anyone who's been looking around and living will notice that we overweight the things that will happen immediately when we're making choices and underweight the long term consequences of our actions. So if it'll feel good to scream at your kid, you, <laughs> but even though that's not the right thing, you do it. If it'll feel better to eat the pizza than the salad for lunch often, even though you know you shouldn't, you give in to that temptation. It'll feel better to sit on the couch than go to the gym. That temptation often wins. So how can we recalibrate and win in, in the face of this? One of the things that research points to is the potency of actually flipping the script and instead of pursuing our goals with an expectation that we can just push through and achieve and resist temptation, recognizing that we need temptation on our side. So we actually meet, need to make it instantly gratifying to do whatever it is that we want to do. So I'll talk about two lines of research that support ways to do this. One is really simple. It's Ayelet uh, Fishbach and Caitlin Woolley, two great psychologists, studied just asking people, you know, if you're going to go to the gym, randomly assigned, half the people are told, do the thing that you find most fun here. The other half, do the thing that will be most effective for your exercise goals. Same thing with eating healthy. Do the, Eat the food that'll be fun that's healthy versus that'll be most effective. Students trying to do well in, in math class, same kind of thing. And what they found over and over again is when people pursue their goals in a way that they've been instructed to that's fun, they persist longer. So that simple insight, just what will make it fun for you might be enough. And then the second part is that I've done some research on something I call temptation bundling, which is a very specific strategy for making goal pursuit fun so that it's instantly gratifying and the temptation is working for you instead of against you. And the way I do this in my own life is only let myself enjoy a temptation like my favorite TV show while I'm exercising. So that makes it so that I waste less time on on binge watching the shows that I, I'm not even going to name because I feel guilty watching them. It makes it alluring to get that workout in and time flies while while I'm doing it. So you can do it with 
exercise, which is how I found it most useful and how I've proven it can help people in research. But you can do it with other things too, like only let yourself listen to your favorite podcast, maybe this one while you're doing household chores or pick up your favorite coffee shop treat that's not so good for you. If you're a student heading to the library, there's all different ways that we can link something that we enjoy and find tempting, maybe should do less of uh, with something that's a bit of a chore and a hook to get us to achieve our goals. So that's one trick that I think is is super useful. Funny you should mention this because I interviewed Bob Cialdini a couple of weeks ago. It seems like May is going to be Influence and Persuasion Month because his book is coming out with version two, 225 new pages. And your book is coming out. Yeah. And he said that when he puts in a good morning of work, he goes to someplace he's never eaten before and he has dessert. That's just like his double bonus so that he's temptation bundling too. I guess. <laughs> he's rewarding himself. Yeah. He's yes. using those self-rewards in a similar way. He's doing it. Sl- it's slightly different actually, because he's, it's, it's not simultaneous. So he's, oh uh, right. yeah. So it's after, but so you have to, you still have to wait for that temptation. It's not quite um, as instantly gratifying, but can be really effective too. So he should take his work to the restaurant and that do it while my, he's eating. Yeah, that, would, that would be the ultimate present bias buster. I, I will, <laughs> he only I will gets point to go, that out to him. <laughs> see if that works. I'll say, Katie told me to tell you, Bob. strategically Bob. feasible. But... <laughs> Earlier, you said that laziness is one of the things that is a barrier to change. But in many circumstances, isn't laziness also a catalyst for change? Doesn't it help change in some kinds? It can if we use it right. So so probably the most potent tool behavioral scientists have uncovered for changing behavior is the default, which is something that harnesses laziness for good. So really famous research has been done showing that if you uh, have new employees at a company just defaulted into having a portion of every paycheck sent over to their 401k, their retirement savings account, without them having to take any action. They don't have to sign up. It just happens automatically. But they can they can opt out. So they have choice if they don't want to have it. There's an easy way to opt out and it's put right in front of them. But you default them into it. That increases savings right away, overnight, immediately, <laughs> uh, by about 40% relative to inviting them to check a box and sign up. So There's all sorts of ways we can use default effects to make life better. There's a study I talk about also in my book that I found amazing that was done at the University of Pennsylvania, where I work at the medical school. They just changed the default way that prescriptions were sent to pharmacies by doctors from whatever the doctor wrote the script for is what's sent to whatever is the generic equivalent of their script is sent. And so... That had this huge impact on generic prescribing, which is, of course, cheaper for the customers, cheaper for the insurance company, just sort of better. <laughs> uh, people And people stick to those generics more because it's less costly to do that. But lot, And doctors mean to set, prescribe generics, and they say they will, but they couldn't get to it. But because they don't take the time to uncheck the default box, this magically puts laziness and makes it into an asset. So there's all different ways we can set up defaults like that to to make laziness an asset for change. What about the ethics of exploiting laziness? So this may not not be the biggest 
ethical breach, but you sign up for a new service. Let's say it's something about enforcing that you lose $1,000 if you don't walk to the nose. And the default is we're going to send you our email. Unless oh, you yeah, that's not the worst one. I thought you were going to ask about, I mean, there was a New York Times headline in the last month about Donald, Donald Trump's fundraising, oh, yeah. where people yep. were defaulted into having a, a donation made every month when they thought they were making a one-time donation. And it was just okay. being extracted oh. off of their credit card. And people thought that was not cool. And no shit. <laughs> and there, there are companies that do things like that, right? The auto renewal. I, I don't think that's ethical. My colleagues, Richard Thaler and, and Cass Sunstein have written about nudges like this and how powerful they could be. And they call that sludge when it's being used to make your life worse instead of better. So my book is about change for good and focusing on how can we harness these techniques and tools to help ourselves achieve our goals. So that sort of stays out of the ugly underbelly of defaults. Uh, But absolutely, this can be used for bad purposes. My hope is that readers will use it for good rather than evil. Now, we're going to go to a bank in the Philippines. And I I found that story very hard to believe. But uh, that's what what makes it interesting. So this is about the, you know, you can't touch your money. Yeah. What uh, about it? Did you find hard to believe that it works? (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, as you wrote, it's hard to imagine you're saying to people, well, we're going to put money in a bank and you can't touch your money. That, that, that It is very counterintuitive it, and it's hard to sell. I think that's one of the reasons we don't see them everywhere. And yet they're so what? successful. So yeah, this is a story. Of, it's a story about research that was done by a team of scientists, Nava Ashraf, Dean Carlin, and Wesley Yin, who had the insight that one of the reasons people who want to save often don't achieve their savings goals is that They put money aside, but then something comes up and they're tempted to dip in, right? So, oh, but it's my kid's birthday or but there's this festival coming up and then you go, you take it out and you'd been you'd meant to accumulate for a big goal and it never accumulates because you keep taking it out again, (laughs) put it in and take it out again. So what can we do to deal with that challenge? In focus groups and also through introspection, they came up with the idea of locked bank accounts, that might be appealing to some people. So normally you put money in your account, you can take it out, it earns an interest rate, but you can get it whenever you want. They said, what if we give you the same exact interest rate, but this is an account that you can't take money out of until you reach a predetermined savings goal that you set for yourself or a predetermined date that you set for yourself. You can use it either way. And they convinced this bank, Green Bank, to experiment with these accounts. So they randomly assigned some customers to have access to both the standard bank account and this new commitment account. It's like a financial chastity belt. And other customers just got the old fashioned bank account. And then they looked to see how did the savings accumulate for these two groups of customers over the next year. And they found an 80% savings increase in the group that had access to these commitment accounts. And and what's amazing is not everyone who had access used them. Only about 30% of people found this appealing. But that 30% saved so much that it amounted to an increase in the savings rate of the whole group uh, of people who were offered these accounts. Is this available from any bank? 
anywhere these days? You know, it's funny. I don't know of banks that offer this exact product, but there's a lot of interesting ways that people create it for themselves, right? By opening like an account in one bank and another auto deducting, say for my my Bank of America straight over my Chase account. And then like I I cut up the Chase account debit card. I never check that balance. I, I never touch it. I like have my my partner know this the password <laughs> and and then that's the money just disappearing and i feel like it's it's in a separate place i don't see it i don't touch it in a sense a 401k is a little bit like that although the 401k comes with tax advantages so it is different than than two accounts with the same interest rate one of which simply can't be touched but i think people create these kinds of structures often for themselves and i don't understand why we don't have more offerings like this in the us i do think they would be popular I saw a video of Jim Jordan yesterday ripping Tony Fauci because wearing a mask was an infringement on freedom. So if you think wearing a mask is infringing on freedom, imagine if you can't get to your own money. Oh, my God. Well, agreed. <laughs> but to be fair, I mean, that's what Social Security is. For yeah. one, right? Yeah. You can't get your own money in a sense. And then but second, I would say I, I think this is a little different in that people are choosing it. So you, it. What? I don't think anyone complains that you have the right to wear your own mask. They just don't. There's people who are saying, like, don't make me wear one. And a commitment savings account is not you're not mandated to use it. It's just on offer next to your standard savings account. So I think you wouldn't see those kinds of freedom complaints, though. You could certainly imagine lots of people would be vehemently opposed to ever using one. Yes, probably the people who need to do it the most. <laughs> Ironic. Yeah. So uh, we're going to go to another surfing scenario here. So, okay. <laughs> Uh, okay. I, surfing. I, it's like for I, the person I, who reads my book and it's like another yeah. tennis scenario. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> did I not point that out when I read you it? You did. You know, I added a footnote because of you. There's now a footnote like on the second time I talk about my tennis coach after the Agassi story. I have a footnote that's like, don't worry. This book is not only about tennis. <laughs> I just had a footnote. Did I make the acknowledgments? <laughs> I think you did. Yeah, you're oh, the acknowledgments. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Have you I'm gotten your copy yet? Uh, I, I maybe have. Maybe they the, just sent you a digital one. I have a paper copy. I mean, obviously, I have a you know eight and a half by eleven. Oh, like you printed it out. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll yeah, get you yeah. a real copy, and you're in the real copy of the final thing. You were totally All in right. the acknowledgments. Yes. All right, I've arrived. <laughs> I think you'd arrive before that. So back to the surfing story. So I am not a great surfer, but I am not a beginner and the worst surfer. So there are times where I could give people in the water advice to help them surf. But now I read your book and I am not going to even think about giving people advice. Instead, I'm going to ask those people for their advice. Yay. <laughs> Did I get your book right? Is that the right thing? Well, it depends who you're trying to help. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> but yes, if your goal is to help those beginners, mm -hmm. the there is this huge benefit. First of all, there's a skill that you have. So this is a little different. There's a skill you have, and they may not be able to just teach themselves. If you want someone to learn calculus, you don't say like, how do you think you should learn calculus? <laughs> and then just expect. So it has to be that the, the thing that's holding them back is okay. they don't feel confident in their own ability, but they have the information they need to get there. But okay. when that is the case, which it is often like that, mm -hmm. there's a self-confidence issue or an, an acting on the set of tools, you know, you should use issue that when we give people our advice, we can hurt their confidence. Whereas when we actually ask them to give mentoring and coaching to a peer who's struggling to achieve the same goal, we're putting them on a pedestal. 
and we're uh-huh. giving them a confidence boost. And we're also leading them to introspect more about what might work in a way that can lead them to have insights they wouldn't have otherwise had. And then once they've coached someone else with those insights and said, hey, you should do it, there's this saying is believing effect that leads you to be more likely to want to do it yourself because you don't want to be a hypocrite. I told you to do this, but I'm not Uh, following through. So to the extent that the people you're trying to coach who are surfing, it's really a confidence thing uh, and they know how to balance and and get up on the wave. I I apologize if I'm using the wrong language here. Better than a tennis analogy. (laughs) (laughs) Then, yeah, then maybe it'll help. But for people who, you know, you just need to tell them like, no, put this foot here and that foot there. I'm not sure it's the right. Okay. So the way it would work with me is that, believe it or not, People, instead of telling me what I should do to improve, if people would ask me my advice, it would increase my confidence and maybe make me a better surfer. You got it. If you already know how to surf and it's really just like... Mentally, I do. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. And you you could have an advice club, which is something that I have. Like other people are about the same level. You're all trying to get better. And when one of you asks for advice from the other, they offer it. Right. Uh. You're like, I can't figure out how to do the, what's it called? The five toe? <laughs> five. Hang five. Hang, hang five. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Close enough. Close <laughs> enough, dude. Oh, you're telling I'm not a surfer. Uh, <laughs> okay. So <laughs> if, you're, if you're trying, you're all trying to get to the hang five, you can ask yeah. each other for advice and then yeah. in coaching and, and suggesting ideas to them, you may actually dredge up insights that help you. That's another action item based on our interview here. Next question. Do you? <laughs> I take it most of your interviews are not like this. No, but this is no? great. Also, you just learned something that's fun. All my friends know about me, which is any like idiom or like thing that's supposed to be catchy and memorable. I, I yeah. consistently get it wrong. <laughs> really? You need cues. I do. <laughs> Yeah, I do. See, I read your book. things in my book that I need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think that expectations shape outcomes or outcomes shape expectations? Well, actually, I think both. That's a cowardly answer. I think both. Yeah, well, both are true. But I think we are more likely to expect that outcomes shape expectations and that expectations shape outcomes and recognizing that both matter can be really important. And so this is, I I talk about the example in the book of the placebo effect and how incredibly powerful it is. And I think we think of that as a medical phenomenon that taking a sugar pill, if your doctor prescribes it for you and says this will make you better, actually does make people better 60 to 90% of maladies that it's been tested with, which is like amazing, by the way. We think of that as a medical insight, but it's actually just an insight in general about the power of our expectations. And it doesn't only apply to medicine. When we expect something to work in life, when we expect to be able to achieve something in life, we're more likely to actually make it so. And what about the second time you take a placebo? Can't you make the case that the outcome, i.e. you got better the first time, has now changed your expectations of what's going to happen. Totally. The There's time. all sorts of cycles in, in any of this. So, And in general, boosts your confidence to have good outcomes. So absolutely, okay. there can be virtuous cycles there. How do you recover from failure as you're trying to change? 
I think this is the biggest, most important topic, honestly, in the science of behavior change, because every single one of us stumbles. And the big thing is, how do you get up and not give up? And I think we only know a little. I I think I'm going to spend the next 20 years chasing more answers on this, to be honest, maybe 50 years. Hopefully I'm going to have a long (laughs) life and a long career. Hopefully not just 20. So posthumously, I'll be, posthumously, I'll be chasing the answer. How do you get will, up? No, How do you're going to figure this out after I'm dead. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I may never figure it out. We know a lot already, but I just think there's a lot more to know. I mean, actually, we already talked about the fresh start effect, and that is really related because because the sort of like looking for those moments that will give you a, a renewed sense that you can do it and you can put your failures behind you. That's part of why the fresh start effect works. I also talked about this wonderful research in the book by Marissa Sharif, who's my colleague at Warden on, I call them now mulligans. She called them emergency reserves. And it came from her own experience where she's a runner, a really avid runner. She likes to run seven days a week. And she knows that setting ambitious goals is better. So seven days a week is better than five days a week for her motivation if she's going for that. But she also realizes that sometimes life gets in the way and she's not going to be able to actually make it. And she doesn't didn't want to become totally demotivated. There's something called the what the hell effect. That's a well-known and well-studied phenomenon where you're trying to achieve a goal. You have a small failure and you go, oh, what the hell? And you give up. So it's been studied among dieters, right? Like you have a donut for breakfast and then you get, oh, what the heck? And you have, you know, pizza and, and pie for lunch and the whole thing's out the window. So how could she balance those two things. She wanted to have a tough, ambitious goal that would motivate her, but also recognize that there were going to be setbacks. And she came up with this idea of giving herself two emergency reserves a week. So she's aiming for seven, but she has two emergency reserves. If something comes up and she just can't run that day, she sort of calls it one, she uses one of her cards. (laughs) (laughs) And she can still achieve her goal for the week, even if she has to use those two emergency reserves. But at the beginning of the week, she's really unlikely to use them because she's really nervous. She'll need them later in the week. And she finds most weeks she doesn't use them at all because she's so reticent to actually take those chits. And she's now done research showing that this is a really effective tool that if she was did one study where she was paying people to accomplish a small task as many days a week as possible. She gave some the goal, do it seven days a week, others the goal, do it five days a week. And then finally, a third group, do it seven days a week, but you get these two emergency reserves where you can get out of jail free if you don't make it and achieve your goal. And that group, the one with the emergency reserves, did the best of all by a wide margin. And it really, it gives you that high bar, you're really pushing towards that high goal, which is the best thing you can do. But you don't give up on yourself when you have a small failure, which is inevitable. You have a plan. You are able to use this card and say, like, okay, I'm still on track and keep on going. So I think I think thinking about how we can give ourselves all those tough goals with emergency reserves and mulligans can be a really powerful way we can recover from failure. Just one of them, though. I think we need we need more tools than that. Uh, Do the chits roll over so if i don't use one one week i get three the next week and then pretty no. soon I have 52 no they don't no, they don't no, roll it's over not they like expire. those vacation days they expire yeah and i think that's important right because if you ended up having <laughs> if you have too many and there's like this delicate balance clearly and i think that's something that is needs to be studied further but yeah if you have too many then you're gonna simply not not get enough done then in my case it'll be the what the hell effect is conflicting with, I got to pay $1,000 to the NRA effect. <laughs> oh, no. That's so, so true. So true. Okay. I am going to, I'm I'm supposed to be somewhere at two. So I'm going to send oh. a quick, no, I, I'm oh. I'm good to I'm, keep going. I, no, no. I just, I'm realizing I'm going to send a really quick text message to my two o'clock. Is it the New York Times? 
No, it's it is two brilliant academics, both of whom you'll want to have on this show someday. I'd I'd rather get them while they're unknown. I'll tell you about them in just a second. Hold on, I'm so sorry. I'm like the slowest po- uh, typer ever. Go, go. I can run a commercial right here. Yeah. I'll be like the the CNN and uh, the Calm app. This moment. <laughs> Yeah, okay, just... I'm sorry. Now I'm done texting. I'm a slow texter. Okay, the person who I'm talking to is literally, you should have him on your show immediately okay. if you can get him. His name is Sendel Molinathan. He wrote this book called Scarcity, Why Having So Little Means So Much. He's a He was a Harvard econ professor. He's a MacArthur Genius Award winner. He's like a university professor at the University of Chicago. He's like recently sort of reinvented himself as more of a computer scientist than an economist. He's just like the smartest, most magical person and well, I have this wonderful. Just text I will. Him I'll, tell him, I'll tell him. I'll tell him you're next. I'll send him your way. I'll send. I'll send an email connecting you. I, I, he's like literally the most amazing person to talk really? to. That and somehow I get an hour to talk about ideas with him a week, and it's like the best. But well, he he knows it's bookland time, and he will he'll give me more time later. I get okay. to take a mulligan. He can <laughs> he can be my third MacArthur Award winner because I've had Stephen Wolfram and Angela Duckworth. You will love Sandal, and you'll. Actually, you guys would be, you would have so much fun. He's such a funny, interesting, brilliant human being. I'm telling you, I'm, I admire him so much. <laughs> My students are like, what's wrong with you? Anyway, I will, gonna, I will send him your way. I'm going to, I'm going to ask him for his advice. So it builds up his self-confidence. <laughs> I, he doesn't need, he doesn't need self-confidence. Right. Okay. Okay. I'm going to rip through some final questions. All right. So this is the practical and tactical, because I don't want to, Cut into your MacArthur Award time. So, <laughs> Katie Milkman, how do you get more people to get vaccinated? Oh, my God. <laughs> you got 60 seconds. <laughs> One thing that my team and I have found is that if you text message people that there's a shot waiting for them or reserved for them, they're more likely to actually show up at their pharmacy or at their doctor's office ready to get a vaccination. We've done this with flu shots, but the psychology should port over here. And the idea is it has something to do with the endowment effect. When, once you feel like something belongs to you, you actually value it more. And and it feels like the default. And of course, I'm going to go ahead and, and do that. It feels easier as well. So one thing we could do is be text messaging everyone that we've got these shots reserved for them. We should also, frankly, be just giving them appointments. Everyone should be given, here's a date and time we've already set aside for you. We've got a shot reserved for you. It's at a convenient location right near your home. And of course, you can reschedule if this doesn't work, but now you've already got that appointment. That should also increase vaccinations. We've seen that it works in other contexts. And finally, let's convey, hey, everybody's doing it, which is true. And the numbers are growing and the uh, enthusiasm about vaccines is growing. If you look at the polls, more and more people are excited to get their vaccines. And when you think, hey, everyone else is doing it, that normalizes it and makes it more attractive to you too. Okay. Well, I, I would think that something like Kaiser could do that because Kaiser has my email and my phone Address. number. So they could send me a thing that says, guy, we have a shot reserved for you. Although right now there's an excess demand for shots, but it's going to change soon. Maybe change even by the time soon. this airs. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Knock on wood. Okay. Second question. How do I lose weight? Carefully. No. 
<laughs> eat less. <laughs> Thanks, Katie. Let me write yes. that down. <laughs> Exercise and eat less. There's a lot of techniques in the book that I hope can help with that. And it really does depend on what the challenge is. But I think this idea of make it fun is really important, actually, for weight loss, because it's such a chore to eat things that don't taste good. And it's such a chore for many people to exercise. If you can find ways to get the exercise you need that are enjoyable with a friend, going to Zumba class, going for beautiful bike rides, temptation bundling. And if you can find foods that are good for you, but that you really enjoy eating and drinking like smoothies. And if you find a kale Caesar salad that really does it for you, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) That's an oxymoron, but okay. Yeah. You have to find the foods that are good for you, but that you also really enjoy because it has to be instantly gratifying or else you're going to quit. Okay. How do we get more people to vote? That is a great question, too. You're asking me hard ones. There's really wonderful research showing that if you ask people to plan the date and time when they will get to the polls and, you know, how are you how are you going to get there? And what are you going to be doing right before? And are you going to drive? You can take a bus. Getting people to make that plan with all those details leads to less flake out, more voters show up, which is, by the way, why so many politicians now are asking you to make a voting plan, because this research has been has been proven so effective. Wait, so the government, the, the, the state of California asked me to make a plan or Joe Biden asked me to make a plan or Donald Trump asked me to make a plan? Who make, well, probably not me? the state of California, probably the candidates, because they're the ones uh, who, who care the most, it seems, about voter turnout. And they're probably asking their base. But everybody now knows to ask their base to make a plan. So that's that's a really common technique. There's also research that you might find a little more distasteful that shows another way to do it, which is telling you that all your neighbors are going to find out whether you voted or not because voting records are a matter of public information. Turns out that a single piece of mail, they are not who you voted for, but whether you voted and a a single piece of mail, just telling you your vote, your neighbors will find out who you voted for because I'm going to let them know and, and proving that they had the wherewithal to do this by showing you everybody in the neighborhood's voting histories increased voter turnout by eight percentage points in a Michigan election, uh, which is the single largest impact a piece of junk mail has ever had on election turnout. (laughs) So that's another way you could do it. But if you're a political candidate, you better beware that people are going to be furious after after that. (laughs) They may not vote for you. They will vote, but probably for your opponent. So if no, so the way to do that is, so let's say you're running against, I don't know, pick somebody at random, like Ted Cruz. So you're running against Ted Cruz and you send people a text, email, or letter saying that it's coming from Ted Cruz with the analysis that we're going to tell people you didn't vote. That would be very effective and very unethical. (laughs) So you get them to vote. And I'm not a big fan of Ted Cruz, but I still don't feel comfortable with that strategy. Okay. Well, you know. All right. Maybe we'll take that part out of the podcast. Now, from your perspective, what do you think the effects will be of our friends in Georgia ostensibly making it harder to vote? I hate that our friends in Georgia have made it harder to vote. My read of the evidence is that it may not be a huge suppression effect that we all fear because people will be so fired up and ticked off about it that it seems like that may override and that does not make it okay. <laughs> it's totally not okay. <laughs> and yeah. we need to overturn those, those barriers. There could be the mother of all unintended consequences. 
I don't think there's research showing that voter suppression backfires, rather that it just sometimes ends up not mattering because of the countervailing forces that are mustered against it. That doesn't mean it isn't costly because it's expensive. Then the, the money that's spent on mobilizing the extra money is a waste and it's unethical. But I'm like just consuming the news like you are. And my read of what's being said by economists who I respect is that it may not have the huge negative effect we think it will, because historically, these kinds of voter suppression laws are then met by countervailing forces that are strong and Mm. don't override, but maybe compensate for them. If I were Coca-Cola, which owns various brands of bottled water, now let's take the whole plastics issue, (laughs) put that aside for a second. So the way I interpret this You can't give water to somebody standing in line. But couldn't Coca-Cola say, come down to the safe where we're giving everybody water so you can take your own water when you're standing in line and being suppressed? Yes. There are all sorts of ways that we can work around these kinds of awful systems. And I think people will be creative about it. And that's exactly why it may not be as effective. That plus the momentum that will be built around countering this challenge but i mean that doesn't mean it's okay yeah no (laughs) we shouldn't be wasting our time countering this exactly but it may turn out to be a mixed blessing for stacy abrams you never know only time will tell and you know there's never been a test quite like this so it's a unique situation and we'll see yeah anyway i'm very upset about it in spite of what i'm hearing from people i respect saying that it may not be as bad as i think but yeah. I think it's unacceptable. It's it's reprehensible, yes. Okay, my last question. So this podcast is sponsored by the Remarkable Tablet Company. You already know that. You already have a tablet. And one of the key selling points of the Remarkable Tablet is it enables you to focus because you can't check email, social media. You can't do all the other stuff. You and your son, <laughs> all you can do is take notes and write. The question that we pose for every guest is, How do you do your deepest and best thinking? This is going to sound strange. (laughs) (laughs) Compared to what? (laughs) It's not that strange. It's not like in a treehouse. Like I do my deepest and best thinking with someone else who I admire, who is a thought partner, I'm not good at thinking alone. I'm very good at thinking with someone who's a friend and who I, whose intellect I respect and all of my best work comes from brainstorming sessions with other people, but not with the internet open. <laughs> yeah. So it is, it is deep and focused. It's like two minds in a room, maybe with a whiteboard, just talking about ideas. That's where I do my best work is bouncing and reflecting with someone who who thinks fast and clearly and and who I enjoy being with. So so this is like you and Angela Duckworth hanging out and Yeah, that's for example one of my favorite ideating partners in the world. From outer space you could see the glow coming from that room if you and Angela are in there thinking. <laughs> that's a nice thing oh. to say. 
That is oh, it's a compliment. Yeah, no, that is very oh, it really was. What no, you... I will say we have lots of fun and I think we've had some great ideas and I hope we'll have many more. She was on this, obviously, and she was great. But can I just you got time for like a really funny story? So. So I wrote to Angela, I don't know, nine months ago, just info at AngelaDuckworth.com. No answer, right? And then I have a theory that I default to yes. So I more or less, I say yes to every request if someone wants me as a guest. Okay. So I say yes. And I don't, you know, I like, I point them to my Calendly and they schedule it. Then I, I get on at the time. Often, I don't know who the hell I'm talking to because there's so many of these things going on. I just get on. And so I get on and there's this podcaster, you know, we're looking at each other in something like Squadcast or whatever. And I say, so what's your background? She goes, oh, I'm a 13-year-old girl in Alabama or Arkansas, and I have a podcast. I introduced you to her, remember? Yes, and I did her podcast, and it was yeah. fun. Okay. She was amazing. Yeah. And so I didn't know who she was. I don't know if she has five listeners or five million listeners. And so I do this podcast, and at the end, I say, well, who else have you had? Because I'm thinking, now, why did I just do this? Okay. <laughs> And she says, well, a couple of weeks ago, I had Angela Duckworth. I said, what? You had Angela Duckworth? She goes, yeah. I said, can you introduce me to her? And so this 13-year-old girl from Arkansas or Alabama or someplace CCs me on an email to Angela Duckworth. And that's how I got to Angela Duckworth. That sounds so about right. Angela is totally committed <laughs> to helping kids thrive. That is her top level goal in life. I know she responds to every email she gets from my high school student or, or well, younger. Not me. <laughs> right. Well, you're you're not a kid. You're not I'm, part of that exactly. mission. <laughs> so that's my Angela I Duckworth story. I love that story. Angela Duckworth story. That's great. <laughs> Next time you see her and you're whiteboarding something, you can tell her that. So okay. Mostly I see her on Zoom these days, despite yeah. being four blocks away. But All right, I will well, tell since- her. Since I don't have a MacArthur Award, if they ever gave a MacArthur Award for podcasting, I hope I'm on the short list. But anyway. <laughs> totally on the short list. <laughs> so not- I will let you go now. As always, it's been delightful, Katie. And, it has been delightful. Um, Thank you for I, inviting me on the show again. Send my best to your son. I will do that. that. Thank uh, you for the wonderful tablet. It's so fun to chat. You are now like a family name. He knows who you are and he thinks you're the best. So anyway, thank you for that. As long as he doesn't think that I wrote rich dad, poor dad. Um. (laughs) (laughs) He just thinks you're the guy who made writing fun. So that's good. It's very good. You have a very good brand in our household. Okay. There you have it. Katie Milkman, Professor Wharton, author, mom, tennis player but not surfer no one's perfect i hope you enjoyed her take on how to change be sure to check out her book it just got out please do me a favor send a text or an email to someone who would enjoy this podcast i would really appreciate that i'm guy kawasaki and this is remarkable people my thanks to jeff c and peg fitzpatrick who teach me how to change every week. All the best to you. Mahalo and aloha. This is Remarkable People.